I, I'm, I'm confident in the material. So this whole idea came from my ruminations about a book. It's not an important book. It, it's a book of readings, and, and it was, if you see the date, uh, 1956 at the bottom there, this, is, this was a textbook of readings. Like I say, it's not important. But what really got me about this and what really got me thinking about it was the fact that this is from Voltaire to the present. And, and it sat on my shelf. I never used it as a text. It sat on my shelf. And every time I looked at it, I got more irritated because I thought, well, history doesn't begin with Voltaire. I mean, you know, that's why Voltaire. I mean, the author is obviously making a statement that that history begins with the Enlightenment, roughly this, the late 17th, early, and, and 18th centuries. And so I, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, everything that comes with the Enlightenment really came with the Reformation. The Reformation provides whatever good came from the Enlightenment actually came from the Reformation. So that's how I got started. Virtually all academic courses that treat the development of history begin with the Greeks, specifically Herodotus and Thucydides, who lived in the 5th century BC, and these are busts of Herodotus and Thucydides. But in contrast to virtually every scholar who's ever written about the history of history, I believe true history originated with the Hebrews rather than with the Greeks. Most ancient civilizations, including the Egyptians, the Sumerians, and the Babylonians, kept extensive records. But so far as we know anyway, they didn't think about the past as having any sort of plan or pattern. Surviving records kept by Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern peoples can be used by modern historians to recreate their history. But the peoples themselves don't seem to have had any sense of historical perspective. In a sense, it's a situation somewhat like the two-dimensional side-face conventions of Egyptian art. We're, we're aware of this convention, but obviously... People don't look like this. This is not, this is not real. You know. Try standing like that in front of a mirror, see if you can do it. So ancient pagans kept records, but they didn't write real history. That is, they didn't write narratives that tried to describe the reality of past events in an attempt to try to learn from them. In contrast, the Jews, contrast to all other ancient empires that we know about, had an intense consciousness of history, which they understood to have both a purpose and a theme. Even most secular scholars agree that before the time of Christ, Judaism was a history religion, that it had a God who provided both historical direction and a final goal of history. Now, we, we, we understand this. We, we accept it because we're so familiar with Western history. But this is not true any place else. There's nobody else out there that has this idea of history. This is completely limited to the Jews in the ancient world. A big problem with ignoring the Bible. First of all, most of the Old Testament was written before Greek civilization even appeared. Secular authors sneer at treating the Bible as history by saying that its history is just mythological. For example, if you push them, they'll say, hey, you know, who believes the story of creation or Adam of Eve or the flood? These are just ancient Near Eastern myths. But for purposes of declaring the Jews to be the originators of history, you don't even have to believe that Genesis is true. J. 
just direct your attention to historical books like First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. These books have few quote-unquote myths, mostly just the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, and their authors are clearly emphasizing history. Even if you accept the late and incorrect dating schemes of religious liberals, First and Second Samuel still precede Herodotus and Thucydides by a couple hundred years. So you can say, we'll take your bad dates. It doesn't make a difference. They're still earlier than the Greeks. You know, it, it's, and look, we're not, talking about any, we're not talking about creation here. We're just talking about, we're talking about David. You know. No ancient non-Western cultures had the sort of historical consciousness that we see in First and Second Samuel. Indian thinkers with their cyclical theories were even more unhistorical than the Greeks because the Vedic religions, that is Hindu and Buddhism, it's sort of combined. Um, the Vedic religions of classical India claimed that time was an illusion. Obviously, if you think time is an illusion, you're not going to be writing history. The sense of history in the Old Testament runs through it in ways that don't strike Christians strongly enough. For instance, Deuteronomy 26, 1 through 5 offering of the first fruits. And it shall be when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance and possesseth it and dwelleth therein that thou shalt take of the first of all the fruit of the earth which thou shalt bring of thy land that the Lord thy God giveth thee and thou shalt put it in a basket and shall go into the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name there. And thou shalt go unto the priest that shall be in those days and say unto him I profess this day unto the Lord thy God that I am coming to the country which the Lord swear unto your, our fathers for to give us. And the priest shall take the basket out of thy hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord thy God. And thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, What? <laughs> what? You've read this, I mean, some of you have read through the Bible many times. What comes next? What comes next? You say, we thank thee, Lord, for providing the bounty of the harvest or something like that. That's what I would say, you know, if I were just going to try to guess what comes next. That's not what comes next. A Syrian ready to perish was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians evil entreated us and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage. And when we cried unto the Lord our God of our fathers, the Lord heard our voice and looked out on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with outstretched arm and with great terribleness and with signs and with wonders. And he has brought us into this place and has given us this land, even a land that floweth with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land, which thou, O Lord, hast given me. And thou shalt set it before the Lord thy God and worship before the Lord thy God. So you have all this little, make this little historical speech before you say thank you. you know. The more you read the Bible, the more you notice its emphasis on history. For instance, in Judges 11, where Jephthah defeats the Ammonites, 11 verses introduce Jephthah and have him put in charge of the territory. Three verses describe Jephthah's defeat of the Ammonites. Nine verses are given to Jephthah's tragic vow about his daughter. And 17 verses, almost equal to all the rest, describe Israel's historical relationship to the Ammonites and the use of history to justify the Israelite claim to the territory in question. In Acts 7, when Stephen is accused of blasphemy, the high priest says, are these things so? Did you ever read Acts 7 and think, this is a funny way to, I mean, this is, this is a strange thing. What comes next? The answer is that Stephen gets a good running start on answering that question by 
by talking about Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David, he goes through the whole history in the Old Testament, which was typical. I mean, that's the way the Jews thought. Furthermore, the Bible describes its people with a fullness of character that's missing in other ancient histories, including those of the supposed founders of history, Herodotus and Thucydides. So we're not surprised that we have, I mean, this is David and Goliath here. Well, that's, that's, that's no big deal. I mean, we have, we have hero stories throughout the ancient world. It goes with all cultures every place. That's not the big deal. This is the big deal. David watching, looking at Bathsheba. And we find both things in the same story. Um, Bible people are rounded characters, while ancient historians generally portray their characters as goodies or baddies, white hats or black hats. So this is not true of the Bible. And, by the way, the same kind of thing happens um, with the Mormon. If you, if you ever try to read the Book of Mormon, it's pretty grim going, by the way. Young guy with an elementary education who writes his first novel and, and it, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't fly very well. It's a, it's a wonder to me. I'm probably the only person here who's... I spent a summer at Brigham Young University and I, I said to the guy, I said, you can't possibly believe that this is the same, on the same level as the, as the stories in the Bible. All these people are flat. And you should, the, the, the guys were all, they were so surprised. that I mean, they had never heard that kind of argument before. I mean, just from the aesthetic business of... These, these people are not real people. They're, they're just cardboard characters. Frank Kermode was a um, secular literary critic. Um, in New York Review of Books um, in 2005, he, he reviewed two books about the Bible, both written by complete religious skeptics. So here he's talking about the reign of David that's described in 2 Samuel. With its beautiful and sensual hero, its ruthless Machiavellian politics, and vividly rendered characters, it must be the greatest quasi-historical narrative that has survived from the ancient world. It is astonishingly 3,000 years old. From the literary point of view, it might have been an even greater achievement had it not, like the genesis of J, been revised by authors more conventionally pious than the original author. If you don't know what J is, this is part of the documentary hypothesis. Sorry, I can't go into this. Uh, this morning. That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother hour of teaching here. Anyway, it's it, a liberal thesis here. Kermode then, then rhapsodizes over how well written this story in, in 2 Samuel 12 is. When the, when the child by Bathsheba is sick, David prays and fasts and sleeps in the dirt for seven days. The child dies and David's servants are afraid to tell him. But when he gets to know the death, David gets up and washes and anoints himself and changes his apparel and worships the Lord. Then he goes to his own house and calls for food. His servants ask why he fasted and wept when the child was alive. Yet rose and took food now that the child is dead. He replies, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I thought, who knows, the Lord may favor me and the child will live. And now that he is dead, why should I fast? David is simply unforgettable in moments like this. If they occurred in a novel, we should admire its depth and its surprise. I dare you to find any stories in secular history, go anywhere in ancient history, that have such well-rounded characters. I'm even, I'm even talking about the Greeks who did a good job 
you won't find that kind of roundedness in their, in their characters. For instance, Joab is a, is a successful military commander who murders two rivals in cold blood. And then afterward, he unsuccessfully tries to persuade David not to sin by numbering the people. Who would have made that up? Why would you make a story up like that? That doesn't, that doesn't fit. You, you, put that, you put that in somebody else's, make some other good, good guy do that, not, not Joab. Ahithophel is a traitor to David's cause, but smart enough to realize that Absalom is a fool. When Absalom rejects Ahithophel's advice, Ahithophel goes home, puts his affairs in order, and hangs himself. Neither Joab nor Ahithophel come across as a fictional character. They sound like real people with distinct human personalities. The Bible may even provide the world's first footnotes, that is, citations to written sources. The Old Testament, written earlier than any Greek history, seems more consciously based on written records than are the earliest Greek histories, which by necessity were based largely on oral history, that is, the historians talking to people rather than consulting documents. So, for instance, is it not written in the book of Jasher? Now, the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Now, the acts of Rehoboam, from the first to the last, are they not written in the records of Shemaiah the prophet and of Iddo the seer, according to the genealogical enrollment? Furthermore, ancient pagans tended to believe that history was cyclical as opposed to linear. Ancient people knew that cities, empires, and individual fortunes rose and fell. Generations lived and died, and in the world of nature there were tides and seasons and heavenly bodies that moved through rhythmic cycles. Because pre-modern people rarely witnessed technological innovations, they didn't think as we do that at least there was some sort of progress in the development of new gadgets. Christians, on the other hand, condemn cyclical theories of ancient historians. To Christians, like the pre-Christian Jews, time had a beginning, a focal point in the coming of the Messiah, and then a final triumphal conclusion at the end. God directed history, and God's providence gave meaning to history. If the Logos, the eternal word, had entered human history in the fullness of time, then time itself also had to be part of Christian orthodoxy. And there's good scriptural authority for belief in a linear view of history in Romans 6, 9 through 10. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him, for in that he died, he died into sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Christians pointed out that if you believed in a cyclical view of history, That would mean that Judas will again betray the Lord and Paul a second time will hold the coats of those who stoned Stephen. To early Christians, history was not a succession of cycles, but a schoolhouse in which God was the teacher. God did not act arbitrarily or share power with fate or fortune as the pagan gods did. The true God guided all things directly and wisely. In our day, the possible meaninglessness of history is a problem that can't quite be ignored by secular historians. Because once we abandon a Christian worldview, history has less meaning than it did before. I won't even talk about postmodernism, but that's, that is 
a bane of our own generation in which history doesn't have any meaning except as, as it has meaning for you. Whatever it means to you, that's what it means. So it doesn't have to be true. In fact, Jonathan Edwards wrote that without Christ, history is no more than the endless crashing of the waves on the rocks. That's why the development of history in the West was so closely connected to Christianity, and that's why what we consider history was an export of Western civilization and not any place else. The Bible itself spurred interest in historical writing as well. First, the Bible was clearly concerned with chronology. And so I have Luke 3, 1 here. It just basically says, Luke is just saying, okay, so this happened at this time. Here's, here's, here's where it's starting. He gives a list of the people. So that's, that's typical. Second, Christians were concerned that the text of the Bible not be corrupted, and so made the quest for a pure text part of secular history as well. Unlike ancient pagans, early Christians tended to quote documents. Scripture itself quotes documents, as for instance in Ezra 4 and 7. One of the things, if you read the classical historians, they don't quote documents. They don't tell you where they got the information. And sometimes they, they basically are just banking on their knowledge of oral history. Eusebius's History of the Church is a rich historical resource built on an array of published and archival sources, unlike anything written in the classical world. Eusebius cites 49 authors and over 100 books. Unlike classical historians who tended to get concocted speeches in the mouths of their characters, Eusebius cites actual letters and official documents. So when you, when you read the classical historians and then you read, read Eusebius, Eusebius is not the stylist that, that Herodotus was or Thucydides, but it's really striking to see he's quoting letters and such, which never happens. In theory, then, the Middle Ages should have been a period of great improvement in the writing of history, but it wasn't. In part, that's because the medieval men lacked a sense that the past was qualitatively different from the present, and in part because medieval intellectuals were smothered by scholasticism, the paganized doctrine taught by the Catholic Church, which took an unbiblical view of the nature of truth. Then there was the uncritical way in which medieval scholars thought about historical evidence as well. If something had been written down, that made it an authority. Eusebius is a more careful historian than most of the ancients who, who preceded him, but even he retained a simple belief in the truth of all documents, not just the Bible. So that's a problem if you think all the documents are the same. For instance, Eusebius tells us that the king of Edessa, today Urfa on the Turkish-Syrian border, not a place you'd want to be, wrote a letter to Jesus and that Jesus answered it. The letter from the king has a touchingly naive quality about it. King Apgar is supposed to have written to Jesus, I understand the Jews are treating you with contempt and desire to injure you. My city is very small, but highly esteemed, adequate for both of us. So why does Eusebius think this exchange of letters is legitimate? Written evidence of these things is available, taken from the record office at Edessa, at that time the royal capital. 
In the public documents there, embracing early history and also the events of Apgar's time, this record is found preserved from then until now. And the most satisfactory course is to listen to the actual letters which I have extracted from the archives and translated word for word from the Syriac. So this appeal to documentation is certainly a step forward in the writing of history, not the sort of thing we often see in the ancient world. But unfortunately, the document in question was a fake, probably written up in the late second century, not in the first century during the life of Christ. And any time when I've talked to students about this, the students have, I'll get a student who says, but maybe it's right. Maybe there really was a letter to Jesus from King Abyssal. No, the answer that, that Jesus is supposed to send back to Apgar was plagiarized from a guy who wrote in the second century, so it's, it's, it's 100 years off. It's not possible. So. The same uncritical attitude about documents encouraged medieval men to invent myths and create lying documents. But because they also lacked the sense of the past, they created these documents without worrying about anachronisms in them. A real forger has to have a sense of historical perspective. If you're forging a document, it's necessary to understand that there's a difference between the past and the present, and then try to disguise the differences. Creating fake church documents in the Middle Ages was closer to creating myths and legends than it was to forging in the modern sense of the word because they didn't have a sense that the past was different from the present. So um, I want to tell you the story of Saint Foy, Saint Faith. Uh, you all know that you all know, you all know um, this person, even though you don't know this person, because an American city was named after her. Anybody know what American city was named after her? Huh? Santa Fe. Somebody said it. That's right. Santa Fe is the Spanish version of Saint Foi or Sancta Fides in Latin. So Saint Foi was a little girl. It's actually kind of a title more than a name, isn't it? Who, in the late Roman times, in the third century, refused to worship a golden idol and was martyred for her faith. In the 11th century, her relics began to work miracles, and the Bishop of Chartres sent an investigator to the little town of Conque in France to, write, to make up a report. The reporter, one Bernard of Angers, interviewed a man whose eyes had been miraculously restored by contemplating the relics of Saint-Foy. Bernard made a favorable report to the bishop, and a fine Romanesque church was built at Conk. In the church was placed a strange, eastern-looking figure to contain the relics of Saint-Foy. A golden idol with the face of what is perhaps the golden mask of some late Roman emperor. They just didn't have the technique to do this in the Middle Ages. So the little girl who was put to death for refusing to worship a golden idol was turned into a golden idol herself. Medievalists thought they were promoting truth, but their sense of evidence was unhistorical. At least because the study of words was so important to medieval scholars, by the late Middle Ages, more of them were able to read longer because of the invention of Huh? Somebody, somebody says something. Glasses. Can you imagine being somebody my age and your ability to read is gone? You, here you have, you're at the top 
you know, of the, of the academic world, but you can't read anymore because you can't see the words. All of a sudden, all of a sudden. So the first time, this is the first representation of glasses in the 1382. The, the, the picture on the right is um, where it's somebody who used the, his glasses to mark the page and then forgot, and, and they stayed there until they made a rust spot on the page. You want to know where the, the first ex actual example of medieval glasses, how they, how they found them? They were in the latrine. The guy, the guy dropped them. <laughs> so. I've done a little archaeology. Uh, latrines are great places for stuff. <laughs> Just nice dark soil. You don't have to worry about it. In India, monks did not create technical aids to improve their eyesight. They took pride in meditating by closing even perfectly good eyes. So one thing the West has over the East is at least they're reading, you know. During the Renaissance, some intellectuals developed a more historical way of looking at things. For instance, the Italian humanist Petrarch was aware of living in a certain moment of history and of writing for posterity as distant from his era as was his... As, as his was from the classical writers. Even more important, the Italian humanist Lorenzo Valla attacked medieval gullibility and anticipated the historical understanding of the Protestant reformers by exposing the donation of Constantine as a medieval fake. The donation of Constantine, written by some persons unknown, probably in the 8th century, purports to be a legal document issued by the Emperor Constantine. It conveniently transfers control of Italy and the western provinces of Rome to the Pope in gratitude for the Pope's having cured Constantine of leprosy. Valla understood that people in the distant past thought differently and used language differently and that people in the more, than, the, than the people in the more recent past. He understood that the Latin of the donation could not have been used in the 4th century. The words were not the same. For instance, the donation referred to Byzantia as a province, although in the 4th century it was a city. It referred to churches in Rome that hadn't been built yet. And it referred to the province of Judea, although in the 4th century the Romans called the Holy Land Palestina. Of course, there's also the problem that Constantine never had leprosy, so the Pope couldn't cure him of it. Fala's essay eventually invalidated part of the legal basis of the Pope's power over secular rulers by, by proving that an old document was a fake. Still, it took a hundred years for the church to admit that the donation was a fake. And this painting here is a painting of the donation commissioned by the Vatican, painted by students of Raphael, 75 years after Valla exposed it as a forgery. So it took a while before the church said, okay, yeah, it's, it's a fake. Ultimately, it became clear that textual criticism conducted even by a single scholar could erode or even destroy the authority of an important document, and with it, the power of an important religious institution that had previously been considered secure for centuries. Nevertheless, Vala was in many ways a medieval man. Vala defended the practice of inserting fictitious speeches into historical works because he thought they were a way of teaching the sort of general lessons that poets did. 
In attacking the donation of Constantine, Valla composed his own fake speeches in which Roman senators, Constantine's sons, and the Pope himself argued that the emperor should not give away the Western Empire. Valla also had a very low view of scripture and believed the authority of the Bible came from the church. Furthermore, Valla eventually made his peace with the papacy and got a job from the Pope. Finally, Valla comes across as a man that you wouldn't want to have lunch with. He was vain, jealous, and quarrelsome, a venomous writer who made his own serious historical blunders. For the reformers, the nature of history wasn't a question they could ignore. At the Diet of Worms, Luther's opponents told him that if he really believed the rituals and ceremonies of the church had no power to save souls, then he was setting himself against the historical institution that had always taught that the rituals and ceremonies of the church had the power to save souls. Well, of course, Luther and the Protestants were right. Neither the Bible nor the early church had taught that salvation had, had been were achieved through church rituals. But both Protestants and Catholics believed that what they believed to be true needed to be proved by careful study of history. And in attempting to prove either Catholicism or Protestantism correct, the Reformation led to possibly the most fabulous flowering of scholarly virtuosity of all times. During the Reformation, there were both Catholic and Protestant scholars who sincerely believed that historical truth was on their side. That is, they were really trying to find the truth, not just concoct propaganda. Therefore, the Reformation awakened popular interest in discovering and knowing truth, and that in turn encouraged the rise of all sorts of learning, including science, which is why I said at the beginning that it, what we have from the Enlightenment really comes from the Reformation. You're, just, you're seeing the product of the Reformation. Also during the Reformation, the first chairs of history were created at, un at universities. Philip Melanchthon, a friend of Luther's and a systematic theologian, um, grasped that a key battle between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism would be fought over the validity of church tradition. And he saw to it that history as a mighty weapon in that struggle was given a prominent place in the new Protestant universities. Melanchthon himself lectured on, on history. Melanchthon was a he was, he was misshapen, he was kind of dwarfish and physically very weak. And, and uh, he and Luther had this strange relationship with one another. Uh, they got along pretty well, but very different types. And uh, somebody asked Luther what he thought Paul looked like, the Apostle Paul. He said, he was a shrimp like Melanchthon. So. <laughs> one of the finest examples of Reformation history is John Fox and what he called his Book of Martyrs. The Acts and Monuments of the Martyrs, actually published under several titles during his lifetime. In many ways, Fox, too, was a medieval man. He originally wrote his book in Latin, and like medieval chroniclers, he was a compiler on a gigantic scale. Furthermore, when dealing with ancient history, Fox was hampered by the uncritical standards of his age, and so he ended up repeating fables that had been repeated by Eusebius and other medievalists. So the, the best part of Fox is his own era not the early church part. It's a massive, by the way, if you think you know what Fox's Book of Martyrs is because you were, um, you, you read it when you were a kid or your parents read it to you or whatever, um, that you, you, don't, you just don't know how big it is. It's gigantic. And the only way to figure that out, by the way, is to go online and take a look. There's a very Orium edition that's online. It's just, it's just massive and very impressive, just done in the last 10 years, finished in the last 10 years or so. 
But like a modern historian, Fox tried to be as careful as he could in his scholarship. He was, of course, a partisan of Protestantism, but his standard of honesty in quoting his sources is high, and his successive editions got more and more accurate because Fox kept looking for additional manuscripts and for people who had better knowledge of the events he was describing. Furthermore, Fox understood the storytelling nature of history, and he mixed edification with well-written descriptions. He even included illustrations. So this is um, the burning of uh, Latimer and Ridley. And um, if you notice, I mean, like cartoons today, the people have balloons coming out of their mouth that, you know, with their words, except uh, some of them are in Latin. But you get the idea that he was going to use pictures to communicate this history. I really have a great um, respect for Fox. He was a, he was a godly and good man. And um, if I wanted to start a uh, Christian historical society, I think I'd call it the John Fox Society. He didn't get everything right, you know, but he tried. That's, that's the important part. He tried. So, what did the Reformation give history? Every modern historian worth his salt begins with a bee in his bonnet, an impulse to prove or disprove something. But if that historian is operating honestly, he will transcend narrower bias in a search for truth. During the Reformation, some partisan historians went in one door and came out another. And that's what real history is about. It's looking at the evidence and saying, my idea about where this this started or where it ended is wrong, and I'm going to write my history to reflect the truth. So there were some Catholic historians who came up with Protestant solutions to problems, and they were obviously condemned by their fellows who said, you know, hey, that's not going to help us at all. Yes, the Protestant Reformation gave us the first professors of history. But more importantly, the Reformers believed that there was both there was truth in history and that true history made a difference and that it is our responsibility to search for that truth and even change our minds if the historical record doesn't confirm our preconceptions. A final story here. It really doesn't have anything to do with the Reformation per se, but it's kind of a story that reflects the Reformation. And here's the story. So Ulrich Zwingli, of course, is the reformer of Zurich in Switzerland. He was applying for the job. This is pre-Reformation. He's applying for the job. And with, there are a lot of other candidates for the, for the pastorate of the Grossmünster, the, the church there in Zurich. It still exists, by the way. It's a very, it was a very nice place to visit. Um, when I, it just happened when I walked in to the Grossmünster the organist was playing Reformation hymns. It was like walking into a movie set, you know. Of course, the, I found out later that, that Zwingli didn't want to have any music in his, he didn't want to have any organs or anything that came later. Anyway, so Zwingli is, Zwingli is applying for this job as pastor, along with other people. And there's a rumor out there that he's been living in fornication with, with a girl in the in his current parish. And, um, so, I mean, this is not, not surprising. One of the other candidates had several children, you know, half a dozen children. So this is pre-Reformation, so it's, 
it's not not too surprising. But but everybody wrote this off as a kind of Catholic story, you know, just to try to defame Swingley's reputation during the Reformation. But in the 19th century, a guy named Johannes Schultes um, actually found a letter from Zwingli. And in the letter, Zwingli confesses that he had been, um, he had been living in fornication, but that he had repented, and he had put the girl away, and now he was living a clean and celibate life. Um, and Schultes was um, in a study with a student, according to this story, and he read the student this letter of, of Zwingli's confession, and then he, he took the letter and put it in the candle, he put it over the candle and caught it on fire. And then quickly he pulled it out and put the, and got what was left of the letter and saved, saved it and said, no, Protestantism is the truth in all circumstances. So that's what the Reformation gave us. So, go back to my book. Um, instead of from Voltaire, it'd be better if we put from the Reformation to the present. That would be, or even better, we went from the Bible to the present. Right? We, have, we have 10 minutes or... Five minutes, if you'd like to ask questions. So, so the question is a comment that all Western music is very much the same way as Eastern music. There's the cycles. Uh, and music is meaningless, even by unsavory music, has this sense of destination. Yeah. Right. And and Western music has been so. If you you go to China, they've adopted Western music, but, but we haven't picked up Chinese classical music. Oh. Yeah, I think that's that's pro that's probably fair to say. Um, Melanchthon had a lot of good. I mean, the, like I said when I was talking about them, I said they're just so different personalities. Luther's is really tough guy. He's, he's kind of a hard person to, to think about talking with because he's just so strong. He's such, a, and Melanchthon always was the reverse. He he always wanted to make a compromise to have peace. And there's lots of good things you can say about people who like to make peace. <laughs> you don't want somebody always so strong that he's just overwhelming your personality. But one of the problems with somebody who always wants peace is the compromise involved. If you're a theologian, it can get you into... So Melanchthon's always looking for a way. Maybe there's a way we can go back to Catholicism. Maybe we can make a compromise between the two. And of course, that's the, that's the wrong way to go.
Does. It, if you think about the, what people studied in the Middle Ages, there was no study of history. I mean, history got studied, but only informally. And if you taught it or wrote it, it was on your own hook. There was no, there were, they studied music in, in the Middle Ages, but not history. Yeah, I, about the Egypt business, I don't, I think we're probably talking about different dynasties. So one dynasty came along and so I don't know if there was a deliberate attempt. And, and our, the problem with our world is, is this whole postmodernism thing where history is whatever you make it. We don't, there's no real history. It's the history of how you feel about things. And if you don't, if it doesn't, if it doesn't move you, well then it move, maybe move somebody else. So it's, it's, History is as true as it has meaning to you. That's the kind of so yeah, and sure we're gonna we're gonna lose any sense of of his, of real history because it's de emphasized. History is just a way to make a living out there, unfortunately. Is this not uh, a lot of the history that Yeah. History is just, if it has meaning to you, well, then it's history. You know? and so we don't have to worry about truth. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Christianity and history are really closely connected. That's why we have it studied in, in, in the West. So one of the funny things that happened was that um, the British conquered India. And when they, when they got to India, there were all these like monuments there, you know. And I said, so what's this, you know? And they started writing down, and they started trying to figure out what the script was. And they went back and they studied it in England. And and the people in India had never been really interested in it, but some of them then went like Gandhi went to India and studied there. So then they they read what the English scholars had figured out about what the monuments from the ancient world were, because they were interested in history, whereas the Indians hadn't been interested in it. So the Indians learned their history from England, from the Western scholars. So. What they did was they tried to combine Aristotelian knowledge with church dogma. So they, so they said that 
there, there must be truth in, the, in, in Aristotle and there must be truth in the church and, and so somehow we can weave it together and St. Thomas Aquinas is probably the greatest attempt to put it together and these, if you've ever seen Summa Theologica it's, it's gigantic like three volumes this thick of so some of it is perf- perfectly okay and some of it's just absolutely crazy and that's the problem when you try to you try to meld paganism with you know stuff that's spiritual and Luther by the way recognized right one of the things he attacked was scholasticism said our universities have to be founded on something other than this so that's one reason the, the push to get like history being taught in universities you've been a great audience thank you um, and let's pray and we'll close our father we're so thankful that we can have this opportunity to think about history in this way we pray that I blessing on this church and on our country and we pray that thou wilt uh, continue to bless the services today we pray for pastor barkman as he brings thy word for it's in christ's name we pray